Lord, we ask that you would use what you say to us in the Bible to help us become more like you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. When I was doing my graduate work, I remember once trying to check out a book out of the library. But the librarian said that I couldn't because I owed some overdue fees on some late books. That didn't surprise me. I was a graduate student. I would check out literally hundreds of books a month, and so it just stood to figure I'd forgotten to turn something back. So I said to her, well, how much do I owe? I'll pay it. And she said, (laughs) $6,000. I have never wanted to tell someone about Jesus more than in that moment, because I really needed her to understand the concept of grace. Fortunately, she said, well, just bring the books back and we'll cancel the debt. Now, you would think that her kindness would have left an impression on me, but no. Several weeks later, I was looking for a book that I needed only to discover that it was overdue. And I remember saying, that person who checked it out, don't they know other people may need this book? This library should enforce their rules better. A little bit like the story we just read. This fall, I'm talking about the kingdom of God. What happens when up there comes down here in me, my church, and my world? And we've said that the kingdom has three R's in it, reconciliation, restoration, and rejoicing. And the most important of those three R's is the first one, reconciliation. Because when we are reconciled to God and to each other, restoration and rejoicing just naturally follow. The problem with that, though, is that reconciliation is hard. And we don't usually want to do it. I know because I've been there. Some of us have had people in our lives who haven't just hurt us. They have performed emotional vivisection on us. Parents who've been cruel. Friends who've stabbed us in the back. Spouses who've betrayed us. Co-workers who have cheated us. Children who've abandoned us. And in those situations, it just seems a lot easier to walk away rather than try to be reconciled. The problem with that, though, is that when we do that, it hurts us, usually more than it hurts the other person, which is why God asks us to forgive, not to make our lives difficult, but to make us free and to give us joy. When we were in Rwanda, we heard a pastor teaching about forgiveness, and at one point he took a rope and he tied two people together at the wrist with the rope, and he said to them to walk in opposite directions, and of course they couldn't. Because when one tried to move forward, the other one would pull him back. That's what holding on to a grudge does to us. It ties us to our past. It ties us to our bitterness. ties us to the person we don't want to be around. It robs us of joy. It gives us baggage we carry into other relationships. It hurts us more than it hurts the person we're mad at. Holding a grudge is like taking poison hoping your enemy will die. And even if we don't feel angry at a person, even if we just think the other, don't like the other person or just think the other person's wrong about something, even then, that's still a broken relationship. And we may feel the need just to kind of avoid the person, even if we're not mad, which means that we're not free. Which I think is what Jesus is talking about at the end of the story, Rosalind read, where you get that sort of ouch line, where the king throws the unmerciful servant in jail and says, this is what God's going to do to you if you don't forgive. And I don't think that the point that Jesus is making is that God can't forgive our unforgiveness. The whole point of the Bible 
is that God's forgiveness is infinite. I think what he's saying is that an unforgiving person can never really be free because they're consumed by anger and bitterness and they can't receive God's forgiveness themselves. To be whole, we need to be reconciled. And in order for up there to come down here, reconciliation needs to happen. Not just between us, but between different churches, different races, people of different economic classes. And the good news that Jesus wants to tell us is that it's possible. With him, it's possible. And it just takes a few steps. And the first is the most important. For reconciliation to occur, we have to first experience deep in our heart, not just in our head, how much God loves, forgives, and respects us. Jesus tells the story of a servant who owed his master the equivalent of $10 million. He could never pay it back. And the master forgives the debt. And then the same guy goes and finds someone who owes him the equivalent of about 10 bucks and throws him in prison because the guy can't pay the 10 bucks. The point is obvious. The servant doesn't realize how much the master has forgiven him. Sort of like me in the library book. And I think that's sometimes how we are. We don't really realize how much God has forgiven us. Because I think we tend to minimize our own sin. We sort of think, oh, it's not that bad. Yeah, okay, so I have a temper, so I shade the truth occasionally. Who doesn't? It's just a little thing. But you know what? Even that tiny sin can be very destructive to you and to other people. Let's just take a minor sin. Let's say getting angry at someone in traffic. I do it from time to time, so it must be a minor sin. (laughs) Pastors don't commit major sins, right? Behind that temper of mine are some pretty nasty things. I'm viewing that other person as an object, not as a person, to be discarded or used according to my whims. I'm thinking I'm better than that other person. If I honk or show show irritation, which I never do because it might be one of you. (laughs) It's the great thing about being a pastor, right? Always on stage. But let's just say I did in a theoretical sort of a way. I'd be creating hostility and fear in others. That would be bad for the other person. That's bad for me. Now, admittedly, getting angry in traffic doesn't have the same consequences as something like murder. But in motivation, it's not much different. It's a disregard for others and an exaltation of myself. Now, my point here isn't to make us all feel miserable. You know, I'm I'm scum. The point is this is how great God is. Here's the good news. Yeah, we're all messed up. We lie, we lust, we trample on others to get what we want. And yet, in all of that, God forgives us. And does so at great personal cost to himself. You know, it's not as if God just said, Oh, okay, it's no big deal, I forgive you. What's on TV? (laughs) No, that wouldn't mean a thing to us, right? God forgave us at great personal cost to himself. He had to become flesh, he had to die for us. When God forgave us, he didn't just say it. He wrote it in red so we'd remember it. And when we really get that, it becomes a whole lot easier to forgive. I've told you before that when Christina and I first dated, first started dating, I I felt that I should tell her all the ways I messed up all my other relationships, just to be honest. So I did, all at once, on the third date. (laughs) Very interesting dating strategy I was using. She burst into tears. She said, my heart is broken. I thought another one bites the dust. But the next day we got back together and she said, okay, so you're not perfect. Good to know. 
but I forgive you, and I believe in you, and I think you're capable of a whole lot more, and I think we're going to have a great relationship, so come on, let's get going. And all of that was as if she had pulled a 50-pound pack off my back. Those years of shame and failure and guilt, just gone. That's what God does with each one of us. He forgives us no matter what you've done, no matter what you haven't done. He forgives us and he loves us. But more than that, he also respects you and he believes in you. You see, it's not just as if God loves us because if it stopped right there, that could get kind of patronizing, right? As if God looks at us and says, oh, look, isn't it cute how pathetic he is with all of his problems? Of course I'll forgive you. How could I resist? You're just so needy. It's not what God says. That means if Christina said to me, wow, you're a mess. But out of mercy, I'll date you anyway, right? <laughs> mercy dating. It's not what God says. God says, I love you, and I forgive you, and I respect you. These flaws don't define you. You're capable of so much more. So come on, let's go. We're going to have a great relationship. We're going to do cool things together. And once we experience that, it becomes a lot easier to forgive other people because we have been forgiven so much. It's as if we owed God $10 million worth of sin. And that other person we're mad at only owes us like 10 bucks. So even if we forgive that person, we are still $9,999,990 ahead. And if the 10 bucks is that important, God will make it up to you. Because God is in the business of taking what was meant to harm us and turning it for good. To be forgiving people, we need to experience how much God loves, forgives, and respects us. Second step toward reconciliation. We have to admit our part in creating the conflict. Now, I've preached this point to you before, but I find it needs repeating from time to time because it's hard to do. You know how the typical argument goes, right? You, someone hurts you, so you feel this compelling need to explain to them in graphic detail all the ways that they've messed up. And so you do this itemized list. Here are your faults. Here you go. Right? And then as soon as you take a breath, that other person then starts listing your faults with a sentence that usually begins, oh, yeah, well, you. But if someone comes to you and says, you know what? I think I really hurt you, and here's how. And I am so sorry. Man, I was selfish. Now, what do you usually say? Oh, it's not that bad, right? I, I, I mess up too. I forgive you. In most situations, when both sides can admit they're part of the conflict, reconciliation happens pretty quickly after that. We need to own our part of the conflict and really own it. You know, don't go admitting some trivial flaw that really isn't a flaw. You know, I just get passionate when I argue. You know, that's like on a job interview when they ask you your strengths and weaknesses. And for your weakness, you say something, some flaw that isn't a flaw. Like, you know, my biggest weakness is I just work way too hard. <laughs> Far out, right? No, you've got to really admit your stuff. Hey, I verbally ripped you to shreds. Hey, I've been selfish. I'm sorry. It's not that hard to do. To admit you're wrong is just another way of saying that you know more now than you used to. Here, let me show you. After last week's sermon, where I talked about how much I liked Google Earth, I got some emails from Microsoft workers <laughs> who wanted to point out to me that Microsoft has a much better program called Virtual Earth. And they were right. It's much better, much better pictures, right? Google bad, Microsoft good. 
I should never have said the word Google in Bellevue. <laughs> I was wrong. See, it's not that hard to do. For reconciliation to happen, we need to first experience how much God loves, forgives, and respects us. Then we need to own our part of the conflict. Third, get all the facts. Get all the facts. Sometimes when you find out the other person's side of the story, it's not as bad as it seems. When I was a college pastor, some people in my former church got angry with me because I was never in the office, and so they thought I wasn't working very hard. Well, the reason I was never at the church was because I met the students on the Stanford campus where they lived. So once my coworkers found that out, they weren't angry anymore. It's almost always more complex than it seems. Experience how much God loves, respects, and forgives us. Admit our side of the conflict. Get all the facts. And finally, keep working at it. Reconciliation is a process, and it can take months, maybe even years. And in some cases where the hurt is so deep, or if there's abuse, sometimes you have to go your own separate ways, just for everyone to be safe. But even then, you can say, hey, let's just at least agree to stop hurting each other. I won't hurt you, you won't hurt me, and I will pray that God blesses you. And then there are times when you can't actually go to the other person, either because they're dead or because they just won't cooperate. In those cases, you can at least forgive that person in your heart so it doesn't tear you apart. I have had to learn all of this the very hard way. As I've told you on several occasions, you know, my first wife left me for someone else. But I have never told you the last chapter of that story. After the divorce, I held on to bitterness and anger for years. I blamed her for the entire thing. I saw her as the villain. I was the innocent victim. And everyone around me agreed with me. Or they weren't around me. Well, after the divorce, we would still talk from time to time. And we used to get in these ridiculous fights about who was more responsible for the divorce. And we would actually assign percentage blame. She'd say, well, maybe I was 40% responsible, but you were 60% responsible. And I'd say, no, 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 at most, tops, I was 49% responsible. You were 51% responsible. 51%, that's my final offer. We did this all the time. Well, one day we were doing this, and suddenly, in a moment completely inspired by the Holy Spirit, I just blurted out 50%, 60%, I don't know. All I know is this, that I am 100% responsible for what I'm responsible for. And for that, I'm sorry. And as soon as I said it, I thought, hey, that sounds a lot better. Let's go with that. More mature. It was one of the most sacred moments in my whole life. Suddenly, I didn't see her as the villain and me, the innocent victim. I saw us both as sinners for whom Christ died. And I realized my part of the conflict, that I'd been selfish. I'd neglected her needs for my career. I had left her lonely and needing someone else. And God had forgiven me for all of that. So why couldn't I forgive her? And then I began to realize that God was taking care of me. By that time, he'd given me a new church new friends, good work to do at Stanford. He brought Christina into my life. What was intended for evil was turning out for good. And I could trust that. I forgave in the sense that I gave it away to God, which is what the word forgive means, to give forward, to give it away. 
And that conversation was honestly the last time I ever felt any anger or any bitterness toward her again. And even though in later conversations she was still angry at me, I wasn't angry back. And the fact that she hadn't forgiven me didn't mean that I couldn't forgive her from the bottom of my heart. And that has left me free. Free from anger and bitterness. Free from any baggage from the past. Free to do my second marriage right. Free to have a ministry first in California and then here free. In fact, someone the other day said to me, I'm not sure you're over your divorce yet. And I laughed and I said, most things in my life I'm not over. But this one I'm actually over. So this is the one I'm actually over. And not because I'm some saint at forgiving. I'm not. But because Jesus worked in my sinful heart to show me how much he loved, forgave, and respected me, to show me my own part in the conflict, show me how he was taking care of me, and out of that experience of his grace, I could let go. I know how hard forgiveness can be. I have walked that road myself. But I'm here to tell you that with Jesus, it is absolutely possible. Because that's what he's about. That's what he came to do. That's what the cross is all about. He died to reconcile us to God and to each other. So who do you need to be reconciled with today? Maybe it's not someone you're even mad at. Maybe it's just someone you tend to avoid. Or maybe it's yourself. Or maybe it's God. Ask Jesus to show you how much he loves you and forgives you and respects you. To show you your part of the conflict so in grace you can admit it and be free from it. And then to show you how he is taking care of you. And out of all of that, he will give you the ability to be reconciled. I promise. Jesus comes to each one of us and he says to you and he says to me, I am 100% responsible for what I'm responsible for and what I'm responsible for is you. And I will nail my body to a cross to pay for every sin you've done and every sin that has been done to you. And I will take everything that is meant to harm you and I will turn it towards your good. And I will never give up on you and I won't just forgive you seven times or 77 times. I will always forgive you because I love you and I respect you and I've got amazing things planned for your life. So come on, let's get going. And because of that, you and I are free, free from angerness, free to forgive free from anger and bitterness, free to forgive even as we've been forgiven, free to experience life at its best, and then free to take God's reconciling love out there so that a world that is divided between red states and blue states, rich and poor, black and white, can see God's kingdom coming and see his will getting done because of how God's kingdom is alive in us. With Jesus, it is more than possible. I promise. Lord, thank you that you love forgive and respect us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to love and forgive and respect even as you you have done that for us. Lord, between ourselves and then Lord out there in that world so badly in need of your reconciling power. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.